Deborah Holtship, editor of Michigan Today. You may have noticed I'm playing some alternative intro music for this episode of Listen in Michigan, and it's in honor of my guest, musician, composer, arranger, conductor, and Beatles fan extraordinaire, Jerry Billick. Now, if you've never been a member of the Michigan Marching Band, you may not know Jerry's name, but if you've ever been to a football game at Michigan Stadium, you definitely know his music. Jerry joined the Michigan Marching Band as a freshman trombone player in the early 50s. Uh, he trained under director William Ravelli, and he worked really closely with assistant director of bands George Cavender. Jerry was writing and arranging by his sophomore year, and he's had a long career spanning television, stage, and film, even the ice capades and the Oscars, actually. As we head into a new academic year and a fresh season of football at the Big House, I thought it'd be fun to get Jerry's insight into the enduring magic of the Michigan Marching Band, currently under the direction of John Pasquale. Jerry's got some great stories, vivid memories dating back many decades of an unforgettable time in the Michigan Marching Band. Here's Jerry. And take the field. The first time I ever saw the inside of Michigan Stadium was the pregame of the Michigan State game of my freshman year. It was mine, by, you know, 100,000 people in there. Uh, I'll never forget it. it was, yeah, well, it was so scary. You know, am I going to make a fool of myself and everything like that? Um, and that's exactly the way the band still comes out. We didn't play the M fanfare then. We just came out and started playing the Victors. That was so awesome. It was just incredible. When I was in high school, I saw a poster for Interlochen for the National Music Camp with a beautiful harpist sitting in her knickers uh, by the palm tree. That was a New York show, New York then. And I talked to my band director and I said, what's that place where the pretty girl is? And, <laughs> um, and that was exactly 70 years ago from now. Isn't that amazing? Uh, How old were you? 13. How now, fun. now you know everything. <laughs> uh, I was in the orchestra and playing my trombone, and I always make this joke that they were so impressed with my trombone playing the first year I was there, they gave me a scholarship to come back the next year in drama. <laughs> I don't oh. play the trombone. Um, but anyhow, in the middle of the summer, they announced that they were going to offer a composition class for intermediate campers. And they said, the composition class is going to be in building I-10. I knew on the map, building I-10 was a classroom building right next to the intermediate girls' tennis courts. Um, even though looking out the window a lot, I, I wrote a piece and they got very excited about it. It was not very good. <laughs> but Seventeen Magazine came and did a whole interview on me and it was an outstanding piece of the summer, which it wasn't. I don't know what they were. It was ridiculous. But I'm just saying that because it's, my interest was always kind of on the side. Mm -hmm. I, I was really a nerd. But I loved Interlock, and I went there eight years. Mm -hmm. I went as an intermediate camper, high school camper, university camper, and then on the staff, actually. And that's what brought me to Michigan. And so I went into marching band just because I was in music education. But at that time, my level, I was the 17th out of 18 trombones. I was awful. And uh, Dr. Ravelli, would, when he would go down the thing and yell at people, and he'd always yell at me for something, he'd call me Dave Green. 
who was the guy sitting next to me. But in the second year, during the marching season, he said, um, I'm looking for someone who's interested in arranging for the marching band. And I thought, he, he thinks I'm Dave Green. He doesn't even know my name. So I think I'll go in. And it was really a way of, because I was in music education, and I knew he was the most influential person in the country for getting a good job afterwards. So I went in, and I still have the piece of music paper where he wrote out the ranges of the marching band instruments for me. And the first arrangement I did was Popeye the Sailor Man. And then Ravelli had a lot of, he looked at it and had a lot of suggestions. And the irony is that was, you know, my second year here, sophomore. I have probably done over a thousand arrangements for schools everywhere. It, in every arrangement, he would look at the score and would have a comment and was never wrong. He would have a criticism and he was never wrong. He had this uncanny insight about how to make something sound good. And he actually changed my personality because, as I said, I was very lackadaisical. And he was the opposite. He was really tough. And, uh, but I could hear the difference when the marching band played. And I could say, this sounds better. You know? And that began our relationship. And then, of course, George Cavender came the second year during that same year that I started arranging. We were like pals and buddies. We worked together very closely because I got interested in more than just the music. I said, well, we should make some stories and do this and do that. And then George would kind of run with it mm -hmm. and develop the shows and do all this kind of thing. And we really had a good thing. And I always wanted some kind of organization to the show instead of here's a song and now we're going to play another song. So. I can't remember what the particular song was that he wanted to do. And I said, instead of that, let's do a show about the history of stereo and hi-fi and phonographs. So we had like an old-fashioned phonograph, and I made the music run down, and then the band made a formation of a record player, and they sped, we sped the music back up and stuff like that. And what we were doing, and I think what Ravelli caught on right away, is instead of everyone going out to the bathroom, the fans in the stadium started to hang around. And we were doing one about Pacific music, like Hawaiian music, and we had to go to make a formation of some drums that we were making. And to get from one formation to the other, I wrote a transition, a Hawaiian war chant, to set up this Hawaiian feeling that we were going to do. And it was just a transition. It was nothing important. But George, later that year, said, you know, that works so well. Said, I'm gonna, I'm, let's play it after the, after the game one day. And that's how that started. It was actually just a throwaway piece to get from one formation to another. The, the good thing about that triumvirate, the three of us, is I was always wild with ideas. And George was very practical, but Ravelli always had the good taste. So he knew when to shut me down. And music was always first. So... From my standpoint of writing the music, it was really great because he insisted that the band play well. And uh, It seems yeah. like a really, really challenging kind of field to go into. You've got some people who are sitting really far away, other people who are very right. close. How do you make it sound good? Well, that I take some credit for that because I was you know, in music school and I had become very interested in music theory and acoustics. And I began analyzing my own scores of what Ravelli was looking for. 
And I will tell you what happened. I mentioned the Hi-Fi show. Mm -hmm. We did a, I did an arrangement of box, staccato, and fugue in D minor. I don't know if you know. It's an organ okay. piece. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was going to be about a stereo system. So we said, the announcer said, of course, you have to have the tweeters, the high notes. And then the band went, da -da -da, da -da 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 -da. And you have to have the mid-range, and you have to have the woofers. You had all this stuff. And I mean, it was designed that way. We knew that that's what they were going to say. And then in that piece, there's a kind of a pyramid where all the instruments come in on top of each other. We were playing it in the stadium. This is probably the second year I was arranging. And all of a sudden, the entire stadium stood up. and started screaming. And Rebelli was conducting, and he turned and he thought some woman was getting passed up or whatever it was. They were all like pointing at the band and screaming. And what had happened, thank Bach for this, but the way the chords lined up, uh, they reinforced each other, and the sound, it totally consumed the stadium. Every air molecule in that stadium was vibrating. And when that happened, and we all, you know, I was playing at that time. It was the first time I saw the music move the stadium. And you're still and a Georgia, student huh? at this, And you're still a student at this time. You're just a young kid, right? Uh, a sophomore. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, in those days, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when I was writing, um, what I was known for was producing these huge sounds. And all I was doing was using the basic fundamentals of musical, of harmony, of having these very balanced chords. And I was teaching a lot of arrangers at that time, and I made a big point of using musical devices to draw the listener in. I mean, so it wasn't haphazard. It was yeah. very calculated, and it worked. The sound of the Michigan band at that time was unequaled, and, and uh, it's still, that tradition, of course, still is going on. It's an incredible sound. Most marching bands, the objective is loud. And I think the difference with Michigan, it's never, because of Rebelli, and that tradition that John still has, um, it isn't, loud is not good enough. It has to be beautiful. And you, you don't think, beautiful in the Michigan Stadium? You know, these are people out there killing themselves, and we're coming out and playing beautiful. Bach, you know, Takata and Fugue. But it's, it's, it's the skill. What brings people is the quality of the sport, the team, how well they play, that same kind of energy uh, that Ravelli and then all the people who have succeeded him keeping the march. So the same thing is being projected during halftime, that you see the same artistry, the same, you know, the, the people actually out on the field are, even though there's 300, there's another 100 who didn't make it. Uh, and I was only 17th out of 18. You know, I almost, I almost didn't make it. I mean, even now, the band, the rehearsals are much more intense than when I was there. I would have been thrown out, I'm pretty sure, because I, I used to make fun of Rubelli and do... I, we, a friend of mine and I started, we started a magazine called The Leaky Bugle. I think they still do it, even now, 50, 60 years later, whatever it is. We make fun of what happened in the rehearsals, and I used to draw cartoons of Rubelli and... <laughs> Did he see those? Uh, he saw some of them. He Well, I pushed the envelope, uh, so the band loved it. 
At first he didn't like it, and then he realized it was all out of love, and he, we became very close. I was like his son, because he never had one, and we became very close for the last few years. I have a question. I, there's a, a house across the street behind our building that says tuba on it, and I always thought, why would someone just put the word tuba on their house? But I've since come to find that, like, the musicians... Yeah, live in houses together? Yeah, yeah. Now, when did that tradition start? I, I understand the trombone house is the bone zone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, uh, that's long after me. We would practice by the rank, the row in the band that we were in. And again, I, I did once, we were doing some formation change. I was the row leader by the time I was a senior. And because I had done the arrangement, I knew exactly how many counts of music were in it. And it's like we're going from one formation to another, and everybody just usually goes the shortest route. And I said, let's do something different to my rank and 12 of us. I said, instead of going that way where everybody else is, let's go the other way. I said, because this arrangement has 64 counts in it. So we had eight counts every five yards. I had figured this out. So it's 64. We can go 30 yards this way. We can turn around and come back, and we will hit where we're supposed to be on the last count of the music. And uh, so they did. They agreed to that. And the band, the entire band, all went, what I don't know, made some lines, and we made a circle. On the row of the trombones just went away, left the band, <laughs> and everybody's watching us. And Rebelli, you know, he, he, when it happened in rehearsal, he got mad, but then we, and then just at the last note, we completed the picture, and the audience cheered, you know, so he didn't. There's so much going on. It's so complicated. It's it, very yeah. complicated. Now, of course, the computers are a huge thing. When we, when we met, were doing shows, we used mimeograph machines, and we actually had cut stencils, and George would actually cut the stencils to show the, the formations where everybody is, and he'd have to figure it all out that way. Now, of course, they do it by computer, and they can, you can actually see them people marching around on the computer, so uh, I'm not for that. I like the old-fashioned way, but, uh, of course, they can do much more complicated visual stuff now. Well, I don't know. It just feels like I, I can't imagine, you know, those cymbal players, like what, how strong you have to be, how oh, coordinated you have to I be. I can tell you firsthand because when I was inducted into the band fraternity, all the pledges we had to march around the campus in a little band and I volunteered to play cymbals when the parade was over I couldn't lift my either arm I was like this <laughs> for a day imagine. so yeah I, it's it's amazing but holding the trombone up isn't easy either you know? no kidding you have to play music you have to remember your formation you have to put on a show you have to play loud you have to play well jeez yeah yeah it's amazing but the secret is the response. See, the audience is part of the equation. And you know how the stadium or wherever, as you said yourself, how you respond to the sound of the band. Well, the musicians are aware of that. And so you have the largest college stadium, the largest crowd, and therefore the largest response. So there's no better motivation. You say, how can they do all this work? And I must say, they work twice as hard as I do. I mean, uh, John and, and the present staff uh, they're much, t they're, they seem much tougher than I remember George. I mean, he would yell and all that kind of stuff, but we could kind of, you know, <laughs> you can't do that in the band. You no. have to really toe the mark, literally. Um, and it shows the nature of the art requires uh, discipline and teamwork 
and uh, I use the word solidarity. Mm -hmm. You, if the group is not unified, the music doesn't work. Music, the the creation of beauty, where you must do it with others. You can do it by yourself, but it works much better with others. It motivates you to be conscious of the others. So there's this whole extraneous thing, which is what's really been driving me from the very beginning, mm -hmm. why I wanted to go into music. Well, it's nice to be part of something bigger than yourself, right? Exactly. Music is three elements. There's a creator, and then there's a performer, and then there's a listener. And all three are integrated. Um, and the performance of the marching band, the effort that they expend to produce the music, actually reaches, uh, you're conscious of, whether you're there or not, you can hear it, and you can hear uh, the degree of effort that's put into producing the music, which is being produced for you, for the listener. And it, this is true, this is why, you know, the most popular pieces in all, in all music literature work the same way, that the notes are put together in such a way that the performers can produce them in such a way and, it, and the audience realizes this is all for me. Did you catch that? It's all for you. So remember that next time you're at the big house. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Jerry and you can find more Listen in Michigan podcasts at michigantoday.umich.edu under the Topics tab. Just click Podcast. You also can find us at iTunes and TuneIn. All right, I hope to have you back next month. For now, I'm going to play you guys out with a little more M Fanfare, courtesy of Jerry Billick. <laughs>